All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis 40. While you're on your way there this morning, uh, the Lord sends brothers in my life often when I preach the Word to encourage me of what we're about to do together and how much help that I need from God. And just a moment ago, Jake Crouch was that brother. And he reminded me what we were about to do in God's presence. And he said, you are about to mock death. And then you're about to ask God to speak, O Lord, through the Word. Speak, O Lord. And that's exactly what we did together. We just mocked death because of the resurrection of Jesus. O death, where is your sting? And then we just ask our sovereign God, speak, O Lord. But he left out that middle part that we just sang, Hail to King Jesus. And I pray this morning that you're reminded that there would be nowhere else you would rather be today than in the presence of Jesus Christ singing, Hail to the King. Hail to King Jesus. Praise to the Lamb of God. That you are reminded this morning that this is why we were made to worship Him. To worship Him. And we want to bow before Him as our King this morning as we come to His Word. And so let's pray together. And let's ask for God's help. Father, we come to You this morning in the name of Jesus. God, we ask, Lord, that You would cast out this morning all of our religious routine, God. That we would dare to approach You in this moment, God, through cold Routine, Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit's help today. That you would remind us, Lord, that we are in the presence of the living God. That we are about to open the word of the living God. And Lord, we desire to meet with you today. We desire to bow before you, King Jesus. To listen to your word. To be instructed from your holy word, Lord. God, we ask, Lord, for your help, God, that you would shape and fashion and mold us as your disciples. God, we need your help, Lord. We stand in this place, God, unless you build the house, those who build it, we labor in vain. God, thank you for your willingness to meet with your people. And your willingness to use your word in our life, God, you are the faithful rock. None of your words fall to the ground. Lord, help us today to hear your word. Plant it deep in us, God, just as we sang to you. Plant your word deep in us today. And cause it to bear fruit that honors Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. One of the things that you'll notice as you read the Bible is you'll notice patterns that begin to emerge. And one of the patterns that you can notice as you read Scripture is God's plan is suffering, then glory. That's one of the pivots, the, the cycles that you can see from Genesis to Revelation. Suffering, then glory. This is God's intentional design. And we know that from the very beginning of the church of Jesus Christ, those very first missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul takes, Acts 14, sent out in Acts 13, churches planted, first Gentile churches in the history of the world. Those churches are planted in Acts 14, we're told that the Apostles begin to strengthen the souls of the disciples of Jesus. Acts 14, verse 22, and and the apostles begin to do that in a very curious way. They strengthen the souls of disciples of Jesus by telling disciples of Jesus that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a curious thing. You know, that's, that's almost the exact opposite of what we might be thinking this morning, that that, you know, this is the depressing stuff in Scripture, but the apostles thought, thought differently that the way that you strengthen the people of God, the way that you strengthen the, the souls of disciples of Jesus is you prepare them to suffer for the Lord. Through many tribulations, 
we must enter the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the pastoral tasks that that we would, as your pastors, are responsible before God, that we would teach you to suffer in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. Why? Because we must suffer through many tribulations before we enter the kingdom of God. This is God's plan. Suffering, then glory. And so that's what we're after this morning as we dig into God's word. That's my aim on the front end is that the disciples of Jesus that are gathered around the word of God this morning, that you would be strengthened. I don't want you to be weakened today. I want you to be strengthened in your resolve to follow Jesus Christ. And one of the ways that 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 happens, that God intends for that to happen in your life is that you would come face to face with this cycle in God's word, this pattern, suffering, then glory, that you would be strengthened to suffer for Christ and bring him much, much glory. So we're right in the middle of this Joseph narrative in the book of Genesis. In the past uh, few weeks, we've been following the life of Joseph. And last week, chapter 39, we saw Joseph make a transition. And he made that transition from slavery to prison in chapter 39. We saw last week that Joseph was tempted as a servant of God. He was tempted by a seductress. He was tempted to sexual immorality. And Genesis 39 showed us that Joseph was victorious in temptation. He conquered temptation where Judah fell. Joseph stood because the Lord was with him. Genesis 39. And yet, the Lord's with him. He's victorious in, in temptation. And yet, that same chapter shows us that Joseph descends deeper into the pit of suffering. And our passage today, Genesis 40, is going to pick up this story. And it's going to, it's going to chronicle and trace the suffering of Joseph even further. And so we're going to read... God's word together this morning. We're going to read the whole chapter, Genesis 40. And in reverence to God's word and in an attempt that we all pay attention, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of the word of God. Genesis chapter 40. This is the word of the Lord. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. And they continued for some time in his custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Verse nine. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me this kindness 
to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Verse 16, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. So this passage this morning, it traces... The suffering of Joseph, his stay in the pit, in the pit. If you look at verse 15 in our passage this morning, that's exactly what he calls this prison. This is Joseph's pit. That's the same Hebrew word that describes that cistern earlier in the book of Genesis that his brothers cast Joseph into when they sold him into slavery. And so the book of Genesis is tracing the suffering of Joseph from pit to pit, we're supposed to read it as a descending lower and lower into suffering. From pit to pit. Ryan reminded us of this last week that Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. 17 years old. And then the next time marker that we get in Joseph's life, in the next chapter, we're told that at 30 years old, Joseph was raised to a position of authority in Egypt. And so we put those together, those chronological markers in this story. We see that there are 13 years of suffering in Joseph's life. From age 17 to age 30, he descends into suffering. Prolonged period of intense suffering. In fact, the suffering lasts so long, it stays so long in Joseph's life. It's so intense, it's so prolonged that many refer to this particular part of the Joseph narrative as Joseph's crucifixion. That Joseph is on the cross while Joseph is in prison. Not in the sense that Joseph is dying for anyone's sin, but in the sense that Joseph is being crucified. He's dying to self. He is suffering. He's descending into the pit from pit to pit as, as the writer of Genesis traces this story. So God has sovereignly orchestrated all the events of Joseph's life. And one of the things that we're going to consider this morning is that 13-year period in Joseph's life. The period of Joseph's suffering. We know from the very beginning of the Joseph story, that dream that Joseph had that he shared with his family, that God has marked Joseph off for glory. God has, has given him dreams, their prophetic dreams, that this man has been chosen by God to be exalted to a place of prominence and power above his family, that his family is going to come and bow down to him. They're going to bow down to him. And yet, what happens next in the narrative, it, it leaves us scratching our head because the next thing that happens is not the crown in Joseph's life. The next thing that happens is the cross in Joseph's life. And we're face to face with this pattern that we see all over Scripture. First suffering, then glory. First suffering, then glory. God has orchestrated a sovereign delay 
in Joseph's life before he is exalted to this place of prominence. We have 13 years of suffering. You can see the persistence of Joseph's suffering. These two phrases um, in, in chapter 40, one in verse one and one in verse four. Verse one tells us sometime after sometime after that's a time marker, vague, general. Verse four, similar. They continued for some time in custody. And so the writer is showing us that he gets there in prison and he stays there. He gets there and he stays there. This is a picture of persistent, prolonged suffering. And this whole part of the Joseph narrative, it has an aim to teach us, to teach Israel, the first readers of this story, and to teach us, the followers of Jesus, that we must trust in the providence of God. And a better way to say that is this. We must trust in the God of providence. We have to learn to trust in the God of providence. The God who's sovereign over every detail of our life. Especially when we receive these bitter providences from God. And so I want to read this quote from a man named William Cowper. Suffered much as a disciple of Jesus. He wrote the hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. I think Ron mentioned this this hymn just several weeks ago. God moves in a mysterious way. This is what he says. Let me read a couple of lines out of this hymn. And this is the encouragement that this is what we have to learn as disciples of Jesus as we begin to consider these bitter providences of God. Cowper says this, Ye fearful saints... Fresh courage take. The, the clouds that ye much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And so this is what Joseph has been given In Genesis 40, he's been given a frowning providence from God. He's been given a bitter cup to drink from the Father. A bitter providence from God. And we're going to press into this. That there's something behind this this frowning providence. There's mercy to be had. And we want to learn to trust our God in seasons like this. So the first thing that I want us to see as we begin to press into this story together this morning, is just how much control God has over every detail of this story. I want you to be fully convinced in the absolute sovereignty of God. I want you to be fully convinced this morning that our God is in control of every detail of our lives. And I say that for this reason. I know what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus, okay? And to have a weak view of the sovereignty of God. This was my life for at least a year, maybe two. As a a new believer, I had a really big Satan and a really little God. And here's what I mean by that. that My theology as a new Christian was anything bad that happens in my life, Satan did that. God tolerates it and God can use it, but Satan did that to me. And what I came to see through study of the Word of God... Plain, clear teaching of the Word of God is God is sovereign over everything. Our God is sovereign over every detail of our life. And so maybe you're like me several years ago as a new believer. Maybe this morning you have a really big Satan. And what I want us to do is I want us to lean into the Word of God and that you would come away today with a little bitty Satan and an absolutely sovereign God over every detail of your life. And so consider just a few of these this morning. We are told in, in the last chapter that we study, Genesis 39, verse 20, we're told that Joseph's prison where he landed was the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Okay? All right, let's, let's, let's uh, regroup this morning. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. 
Did you catch that detail? Okay, That's a really curious detail for a man who is, had, had been set apart by the sovereign purposes of God to a position where he's going to rule in a position of authority. His family's going to come bow down to him. All of a sudden he finds himself in prison, but a prison where the king's prisoners are thrown in jail. Curious detail. Okay? And that prepares us for this story in chapter 40, verse 2, when Pharaoh becomes angry with two of his officers, and then he casts these officers into the same prison with God's servant, Joseph. Now, two ways to approach this. Man, look how random that was. They just happened to be in in the same place. You mean in the prison where Pharaoh's prisoners are. All of a sudden he gets angry at just the right time to just the right men. And they land in just the right place beside just the right servant of God. And what we see here is another example of the God of providence. The God of providence. That God is behind every detail in this story. Not only is he sovereign over an innocent man being thrown into prison. He's sovereign over that. Devil didn't do that to Joseph. God did that. God is sovereign over Joseph's suffering. But not only is he sovereign that an innocent man finds himself in jail. He's sovereign over which jail you land in. The jail where Pharaoh's prisoners go. Absolute Sovereignty of God in suffering. You have to learn this well. That when you receive that bitter providence behind all the other causes of that providence, your sovereign God is in control over every single detail. No detail is left out. This is exactly how Joseph learned to think about his suffering. When he began to to think back on uh, his life and what had happened in this period between 17 and 30, he did not land on the devil threw me a really big curveball 13 to 30, but I got out of that thing, you know, praise God. That's not what he says. He does not think about his life like that. And we have to learn the absolute sovereignty of God and suffering. In Genesis 45, verse 5, Joseph stands face to face with his brothers who sold him into slavery. And we have these two things side by side. They're beautiful. They're beautiful. Joseph looks at his brothers and he says two things. You sold me. You sold me. This is the wickedness of human sin. In the same sentence, without skipping a beat, Joseph transitions to this phrase. You sold me, Genesis 45 verse 5, God sent me. You sold me, God sent me here. I was sent here by God. You didn't do anything to me that was not part of God's sovereign plan for my life. God sent me here. God sent me to this place of suffering, the absolute sovereignty of God in suffering. His providence is behind absolutely everything. I want us to remember really quickly, Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world at this particular point in time. He is the strongest ruler on planet earth. And what do you know? Okay, This story shows us That Pharaoh is being ruled by the God of providence. He's a pawn in the hand of our sovereign God. At just the right time, Pharaoh gets angry. At just the right time, his servants provoke him. We don't know what they did. We don't even know if they were guilty. At just the right time, he's provoked and he sends these officers into this prison with Joseph. This is a living picture Of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. Listen. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Now, 
At the end of the day, you either believe that about God or you don't. You either believe this about God or you don't. That every human heart is like a stream of water in his hand. And God turns it wherever he wants to. End of sentence, end of paragraph. No buts. Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He's absolutely sovereign over every detail of our life. We see His sovereignty again in verse 5. That this you can't even keep this God out of, out of human dreams. You go to sleep at night. And, and, you, and you're not even conscious about what you're doing. And this sovereign God, He comes into your consciousness and he, and he begins to torment your mind with dreams. He's sovereign. These two servants of Pharaoh have a dream from the Lord at just the right time, at just, on, on, on the very same night. He's sovereign over every detail. And we just, we just hold this out this morning. He's sovereign. Trust Him. Our God is sovereign. Trust our sovereign God. He knows better than we know. He rules all things from His royal throne. Nothing is outside of His authority. He's promised to do us good always in Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Trust Him in these bitter providences. Trust our sovereign God. These royal prisoners, they have this dream on the same night. Joseph is the one that God has placed beside them to serve them daily. He's the one meeting their needs, bringing them their food. He's in the habit of daily conversation with these men. So it's only natural that when God begins to terrify their conscience... God has already sent His servant in their life. And Joseph asked this perfectly natural question in verse 7. Why are your faces downcast? What's wrong? What, what troubles you? Why are your faces downcast? God has orchestrated this moment so that Joseph would be the one to ask that particular question. We can trust God that He has placed us in difficult circumstances exactly where He wants us to be. Exactly where he wants us to be. These men were troubled by these dreams. And, and they're troubled because of the Egyptian, uh, the way that the Egyptians thought about dreams. Um, they have a, the, the, the ancient Near East worldview, the Egyptian worldview, believed that sleep put you in contact with the spirit realm. Put you in contact with another world. And so what these men are troubled by is they, they know that they have received some oracle, some word from this other realm. They just don't know what it means. They don't know what it means. And so they're troubled. They're sad. Now through the study of ancient Near Eastern background studies... Uh, through archaeology, we know um, some of these, these things have been uncovered that the, that the Egyptians created a special class uh, of, of professionals in Egypt. They, they were dream interpreters. That, that they used these elaborate dream books in Egypt that they would begin to try to unlock human dreams by, by, un, by taking the symbols of the dreams and unlocking them through these dream books. And these men are, are troubled and they're sad because the only way they know in their worldview to understand this oracle is to have these dream interpreters interpret for them. But they're in prison. They have no access uh, to, a, to an interpretation for these dreams. And so they're troubled and they're sad. And this is, this is, this is why Joseph responds with, with this phrase in, in verse 8, with all that background of, you know, uh, false Egyptian theology, okay? All that background there, Joseph says this, this question in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? Do not interpretations belong to God? We're supposed to read that in God's Word as a polemic statement against the whole Egyptian way of thinking about the spiritual realm. 
That's a polemic statement. That word polemic is, is, is a Greek word that just means war. It's a, it's, a, it's a war of words, a waging of war against this false theology, this false worldview from Egypt. The Bible does this often, especially in the book of Exodus, where the whole Egyptian system is mocked by the word of God. And so Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? He's mocking that whole system. God is the only one that can reveal the hidden things. God is the only one that can reveal the unseen things. He's the only one that that can declare the end from the beginning. To God belong interpretations. He holds forth God as Lord of all. And he speaks boldly. He says, tell your dream to me. He speaks boldly before these men. This is what's so different than what passes as as charismatic gifts today. Okay, That Joseph stood before uh, these men as a prophet of God. He heard the dreams and then with boldness and with confidence, just like Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't say, you know, this might mean this, and, and this might mean this, and, and you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking this might mean this. He says, this is the Word of God. This is what's going to happen. He speaks like he's speaking the living oracles of God. This is an interpretation with authority because this is the Word of God. This is the word from another world coming through the lips of Joseph the prophet. He's being set aside in this passage as a prophet of God. He hears the cupbearer's dream first, beginning in verse 9. We had this dream about this fruitful grapevine. It begins to bear fruit. The cupbearer is gathering the grapes and pressing them into the cup of Pharaoh. And, and, and he hands the cup to Pharaoh. And then, and then Joseph interprets this dream in verse 13. He says, In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. This is a prophetic word, okay? Raise your hand this morning if you know what's going to happen to anybody in this room in three days. You don't. Humble yourself, okay? This is the prophetic word of God. Joseph does. He's received a word from another world. He says in three days you're getting out of prison. You're going back to Pharaoh's court in three days. In three days he put a time stamp on it. Three days. The chief baker hears that the interpretation is favorable. And that means something like he's saying, that sounds good to me. Three days sounds good. Back in Pharaoh's court in three days, I think I'll tell my dream too. So he steps up next and he tells his dream to Joseph about the three cake baskets that are on his head. And we're told in this dream that the birds of heaven are eating the baked goods out of the top basket. On the chief baker's head, Joseph interprets this dream in verse 19 with these words. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. So one of the things we learn about Joseph, Joseph is not a sugar mouth prophet. Okay. And that's one thing that sets him apart from many so-called prophets in our day. He didn't hide the bad news. He spoke as living oracles of God. He spoke the word of God, not the word of Joseph. And when it was blessing, he spoke blessing. When it was curse, he spoke a curse in the name of the Lord. He's a vessel in the hand of Yahweh. He's a prophet. He's being set apart As a prophet of God. He's speaking true knowledge about who God is. This is who God is. In three days, somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to live. God is a righteous judge and a savior. In three days, somebody's getting delivered. And in three days, somebody's going to be judged. This is the message from Joseph. The dreams and the interpretations. Three days, there's going to be life and death. And what we see in this story is three days later, it came true. 
That time stamp, three days, exactly what Joseph said, it came true. Okay, He didn't just get it kind of right and call it prophecy and missed a couple of things. The word in Joseph's mouth was the word of God. In three days, it was exactly as Joseph said. Look at verse 21. Pharaoh restored the chief cupbearer to his position. And he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And so here we have it. The word in this man's mouth is the truth of God. The word in his mouth is the truth of God. Joseph has been sent by God. And now his, his sending is being confirmed by this prophetic gift that God has given him, that, that's, that we're seeing played out in this passage. He's a prophet sent by God. He's destined to be exalted through these dreams. He asked for one favor in this passage. He asked for one thing. Verse 14, he says, only remember me. That's the only thing that he wanted from the, the, the chief cupbearer is when the word of God is fulfilled, remember me. That's it. He didn't want money. He didn't want anything else. Okay. He said, remember me. Put in that word to Pharaoh. And we're told in verse 15 that he's that innocent sufferer. So I want you to think about Joseph's life at this point. We're told that there's two years between the interpretation of these dreams and Joseph being released from prison. That means that he's already been suffering for 11 years at this point. Okay? And then God gives him this supernatural interpretation and it all comes true. It all comes true. The chief cupbearer is exalted to Pharaoh's court. And I want you to think about yourself in his position this morning. Almost certainly... Joseph is thinking, now is the time. I've been in prison for 11 years. God's given these prophetic dreams and the interpretation. It all, it all came true. Now's the time where the Lord is going to deliver me from prison. And so just imagine yourself there as he woke up the next morning excited. Man, today is the day. I just know today is the day. The cuffbearer is going to tell Pharaoh what happened. Pharaoh's going to let me out of this jail. But instead, what we have in Genesis 40 is that day, next day turns into next week, next week turns into next month, next month turns into next year. And this text tells us that for two years, Joseph is rotting away in this prison. Verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He was forgotten by men. The one thing that he asked for was denied him. He asked to be remembered. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And so we're back to this theme that we started with. What we have in Genesis 40 is a picture of the prolonged planned suffering of a servant of God. And let's make sure we're clear here. Through no fault of his own. Look at verse 15. Through no fault of his own. He says, I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Innocent, righteous sufferer. And one of the things that I want us to see in Genesis 40, there's no immediate resolving of this tension. The way that this chapter ends is the servant of God is rotting in prison. There's no immediate resolve here. We have a picture of planned, prolonged suffering. Joseph is in the prime of his life. 17 to 30. At the pinnacle of his energy, all of his faculties that God has given him. And so if you don't know this about God, if, you, if you're unconvinced up to this point, look at this passage and behold, God is not a pragmatist. Okay, We're the pragmatic ones. 
The practical ones. What's the best use of the time here? What's the best use of the resources here? God ain't like that. God is not pragmatic. We don't take a man in the prime of his life at the pinnacle of his energy and his health and his giftings and say, sit on the bench for 13 years. We think about stories like that and we think, what a waste. What a waste. Think of all the things that could have been done in this man's life in this 13 year period. And yet, what we have here is an intentional, planned, prolonged suffering from God. And the question that I want us to consider this morning is why is this so often God's way with His servants? Why so often is this the pattern that we see with the servants of God? And so we have it here with Joseph. 13 years. What could have been fruitful, productive years in our pragmatic minds. And yet the sovereign God says, no, your lot, your providence in these 13 years is a prison cell. And this is not the last time. The same thing happens with the whole nation of Israel. The whole nation. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham got the prophecy that for 400 years, his descendants would be slaves in Egypt. And then and only then would they be brought out by God into blessing, into the promised land. Suffering first, then glory. This is the pattern. Suffering first, then glory. And shortly after this, not even, not even the whole nation, but Moses himself. Think about the story of Moses. Forty years he grows up at the pinnacle of Egyptian culture. He knows all the wealth of Egypt. He has all the wisdom of Egypt. He grows up in the household of Pharaoh. And man, if anybody has ever been prepared in a worldly way, in a natural way, for all the gifts that are needed for leadership and leading a nation, surely it's Moses, right? He's ready to reign. He's ready to lead the people of God. Very next move in Holy Scripture. Take the servant of God, send him for 40 years to the backside of nowhere in a, in a desert of Midian. For 40 years of his life, not a word from Scripture. Not a word. He's sent into obscurity. He sent into four decades of obscurity to wait. Why the pattern? Why this pattern in God's word of hiddenness and waiting and suffering and affliction? Then glory. Then glory. This is the pattern we see as we jump into the New Testament. We see this pattern in the life of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, we have an angel come and an angel announces this holy man's birth. Angel says he's going to be great before the Lord. He's going to turn the hearts of many towards righteousness. He's destined by God for greatness. Very next move in Holy Scripture, John the Baptist lives three decades in the wilderness, eating bugs, clothed in sackcloth, obscurity, a nobody with nobody knowing his name. Until around 30 years old, he's, he's launched into this public ministry as the forerunner of the Messiah. Why the pattern all throughout the Word of God, suffering first, then glory. And then we come to our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the climax of this pattern of suffering first, then glory. Suffering, then glory. You know, if you've ever read the Gospels with, uh, with a heart to learn the, the life and the story of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what the Gospels present to us, the incarnation of the Son of God, the life of the Son of God, the teachings of the Son of God and the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And if you ever read those, we have four of them because He's so glorious. You know, you, you get a biography, you might get one. Jesus gets four. Eternal Word of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you ever lay those out, something ought to strike you that these things are really lopsided. Really, really lopsided. When you think about the chronology of Jesus' life. 
95% of the books deal with the last three years of Jesus' life. 95%, three years of his life. So we have this little bitty glimpse in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel of the birth of Jesus. This, this little bitty glimpse of the birth of Christ. Some of the details of his infancy. We have these the scattered details and they're very few that at some point along the way, the Son of God flees Herod and goes to Egypt with his family, comes back after Herod dies. Some point along the way at 12 years old, the Son of God is participating in the Feast of Israel, asking theological questions in the temple. Other than that, you know nothing about Jesus until He steps on that public stage about 30 years old. And then the Word of God begins to explode with information about Christ. And so think about that this morning. That you know almost nothing about what Jesus did for three decades of his life. He was placed in obscurity. He was placed in hiddenness by God. He was, he was the son of a nobody carpenter in Nazareth. That's what they knew him as when he stepped forward in his public ministry. Is this the carpenter's son? This is the pattern. Why, why this pattern of three decades of hiddenness before the Son of God is revealed progressively to all the world? Hiddenness, affliction, suffering, then glory. Several passages in the New Testament highlight this theme of the descent of Christ and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Suffering of Christ and the glory of Christ. Probably the most popular uh, passage that highlights this theme is Philippians chapter 2. You remember that Christ hymn? In Philippians chapter 2, it starts in heaven and eternity past. That though He was... Uh, uh, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. And then the text says he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. He veiled his glory and he takes a descent. The ultimate condescension. The eternal son of God. Text tells us that he came to us as the form of a servant. That he becomes obedient like a slave. Even obedient to death on a cross. And so we have the condescension of all condescensions of the eternal Son of God all the way down to the bloody death of Jesus on the cross. And then that hymn turns the corner with a therefore. It says, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus, this suffering Messiah, this suffering servant of God. God has highly exalted Jesus. Has given him the name that is above every name. That now at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. We have that pattern in Jesus' life. Suffering first, then glory. Peter, tell, Peter mentions this pattern specifically. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he comments that all the Old Testament prophets worked in these two paradigms. Of the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And so that's our, that's our question this morning. Why did God send Jesus to the cross before He exalted Him to the throne? Why suffering first, then glory? Why is this God's plan, God's pattern? Why? And why is this the pattern, the mark for all the followers of Jesus? Suffering first, then glory. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I think God's word gives us some clarity that we, we can begin to answer this question of why. That we can begin to answer this. Why would God have Joseph imprisoned for 13 years? And we see the answer to this question in Psalm 105. Psalm 105 comments back on this period of the suffering of Joseph. Beginning in verse 18, we have these words. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. 
the word of the Lord tested him. There's the answer to our why question. That God intends to test his people. Always has been the pattern. God intends to test his people. He intends in these 13 years of suffering to forge Joseph's character into the likeness of Jesus Christ. God intends to test his people. God was testing Joseph. Another way to say this is God is preparing Joseph to, to be exalted at the proper time. He's preparing him through his suffering to be exalted at the proper time. Hebrews 5 verse 8 tells us that this pattern, this was even the pattern of Jesus Christ. This was even the pattern of Jesus. Hebrews 5 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. That even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And so let's step back for just a moment. Okay, Let's make sure everybody understands this. There are things that God desires for you to have that you cannot learn in a book. There are things that God desires to be displayed in your character that the only way they will be displayed is in the furnace of affliction. Is in the furnace of affliction. This is his pattern even with the Holy Son of God. And so I want you to think about this this morning. Okay, There are virtues that God desires that you have that are impossible apart from suffering. So let's start with just a few things like patience. Think about that this morning. If God desires for you to be a patient man... Or a patient woman. Now you can learn about that in the book. You can learn about what patience is in the Word of God. But you can only become a patient person. Patience can only be displayed in your character when you're put in uncomfortable situations that call for patience. Same with virtues like forbearance. That, you, that, you, that these things are only shown in our life when we're placed in certain situations that we need to forbear. That we need to be patient with. In other words, if every day was sunshine and rainbows, if every day is a Friday, how is God going to display patience and forbearance in your life? How is God going to do that? Do you understand this? There are things that we can't have apart from the furnace of affliction. Virtues. And even more than that, there are things about God that you can't know apart from the furnace of affliction. Think about this. You can't know God as the comforter unless God places you in certain situations and circumstances in your life that are uncomfortable. You know that. The uncomfort causes you to cry out to God and to experience the God of all Comfort. You can't know the deliverance of God unless you're in situations that you're crying out and need to be delivered. There are things that God has for you to know as a follower of Jesus that you cannot know apart from this pattern of suffering than glory. He wants to make us like Christ. We're told in the book of Romans that the sufferings of this present time, this is how they prepare for us glory to come. They prepare us for glory because they make us like Jesus. They make us like Christ. And so there's two things, applications that I want us to learn from this pattern. These are takeaways from this text this morning. And the first is this. I want, I want to make sure that you're making this personal. That this is not just a vague general thing of how God deals with some. I want you to be convinced and prepared. This is how God will deal with you. There will be suffering. Then there will be glory. There will be a cross. Then there will be a crown. Language of Acts 14. Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. And so I want you to be reminded this morning personally. That you can never become like Jesus if you bypass the furnace of affliction. You cannot escape suffering. God won't allow it. You cannot escape it. Jesus tells us this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. 
I want you to be reminded of the call of Christ on your life this morning. He tells you to anybody who would follow Him. He tells you to deny yourself. And then He tells you these words. Take up your cross daily and follow Me. Take up your cross daily and follow Me. There's an aspect and an element of death every single day in the life of a follower of Jesus. That we die to self. That we die to the flesh. Paul even says this. He says, I die every day. And Jesus is calling us to this, to this dying of self. This taking up of the cross every single day. This aspect of suffering. Now let me say this. Suffering is not the only aspect of the Christian life. Praise to the living God. Okay? It is not the only thing that we experience as followers of Christ, but it is real. In the life of every follower of Christ, we must suffer. We must suffer. And because we must suffer, we have to learn to trust the God of providence. We have to learn to trust the God of providence. He is our Father in heaven. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of ages. And we need to be reminded that that's real. That's something available for us as followers of Christ. That we can learn to kiss the staff, to kiss the rod, to kiss the waves, to be thankful for the circumstances. Not because of what they are in and of themselves, but because God intends to make us like Jesus through the furnace of affliction. Suffering first, then Glory. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. This is the commandment. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Humble yourself under those bitter providences of God. Put your trust in your Father in heaven and at the proper time He will exalt you. He'll give you exactly what you need. He won't keep you a moment longer than is needed. Trust your sovereign God. Second takeaway from this passage, and I'll close with this, is that this chapter is a really good reminder for us as followers of Jesus that we absolutely cannot gauge God's love to us based on our outward circumstances. We absolutely cannot. This is a death pit to your walk with God. If that's your theology, that as soon as you get thrown into the pit, God doesn't love me. Joseph didn't have that theology. We cannot gauge God's love for us by our present circumstances. We cannot. I want to give you this warning, brothers and sisters. I want to give you this warning. Not mad at anybody. I want to get loud for just a minute. I'm not mad at anybody. I want you to hear it. I want you to be warned this morning. Your feelings cannot be trusted. They cannot. Your feelings will lie to you about God. They will preach false doctrine in your mind, in your heart. Do not trust your feelings. Trust your sovereign God. They will scream at you in the pit. They will lie to you. Over and over again. And so I want us to be reminded this morning from Genesis 40. Your feelings are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord in the pit. He's Lord in the suffering. I want us to be on the lookout for pit theology. For pit theology. And you could summarize pit theology like this. I'm in the pit, therefore God has abandoned me. And if it wasn't so, God would not have abandoned me. I'm in the pit, therefore God doesn't love me. God has abandoned me. Watch out for this. That's only half the story. That's only reading the story of Joseph, of what can be seen with the eyes and felt with the hands, experienced in this natural world. Where's faith? Where's faith in the promise of God? Where's the leaning in on things, not just that we can see, but the things that we cannot see? Joseph was in the pit, no doubt, 13 years. And then he was forgotten by men, left to rot. 
But the story doesn't stop there. God didn't forget Joseph. Men forgot Joseph. God did not. Men forsook Joseph. God did not. God was faithful to Joseph in his suffering. And this is what we need in the pit. We need not pit theology. We need gospel theology in the pit. Gospel promises buried deep in our hearts that when our feelings start preaching at us, the Word of God begins to preach even stronger. Jesus said He would never leave me. Jesus said He would never forsake me. Jesus said there's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. We need gospel doctrine. I want to remind us in this story that Jesus, of who Jesus is not like. Not like. And as we read this, the Scriptures, a lot of times we pull out parallels of Jesus is like this person except Jesus is greater. I want to pull out a contrast in this text that Jesus is not like this chief cupbearer. He's not like Him. This chief cupbearer was exalted to power for a moment of time. And in a millisecond of that power and that affluence, He forgot Joseph to rot in prison. And I want to remind us this morning that Jesus is not like this man. He's not like that. The Bible tells us that Jesus has been exalted to the highest place imaginable. He has been given the name that is above every name. We're told in the Word of God, He's been exalted far above all rule and authority. And yet from that place of power at the right hand of God, Jesus will never forget His people in their suffering. The highest of kings, the pinnacle of power, and yet He remembers us. He will never forget us. He will never leave us. And I don't know of anything more comforting in the pit of suffering than to be reminded and to be fully convinced that the watchful eye of my God is upon me. He has not left me. He sees me. He will not forsake me. He has not forgotten me. Jesus will not forget His people. Christians suffer. The whole sermon has been reminding us of this. But the Gospel reminds us that we never suffer by ourselves. Christ is with us. Never to leave us. Never forsake us. Listen to this promise in, in Isaiah 49, beginning in verse 13. The prophet says this, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people, and He will have compassion on the afflicted. This is what's available to us. The comfort of God. The compassion of God. And then God's Word. He knows us. He knows the questions that we ask. Look at what He says. It's like He's putting his, the words in our mouth. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The, my Lord has forgotten me. He knows us. And then the promise of God. Can a woman... Forget her nursing child? Is that possible? That a mama would forget her nursing baby? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And the Word of God says, yeah, they may, that, may be, that may happen. Even these may forget. And then God reminds us, take comfort this morning. Yet, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. And your walls are continually before me. God knows us better than we know ourselves. He's closer to us than our own souls. And Jesus promised His people. He's engraved us on the palms of His hands. He will never forget us. He will never forget us. And even more than that, that Christ suffers with us. He won't forsake us. The Gospel reminds us that He's the one who climbed into the pit for us. He took our suffering. He took the wrath of God that we deserve to seal our eternal salvation with His own blood. Nobody in all the world 
has the evidence and the proofs that we have that our God, He really loves us. We serve the God that bleeds for His people. Be encouraged. God demonstrates His love for us that while we were sinners, Christ has died for us. He has shed His blood for His people. He will never forget us. He will never leave us. Your feelings are a liar. And the Word of God is true. Your feelings are a liar. And the Word of God is true. Jesus will never forget His people. And our response to our Lord is may the Lord help us never to forget Him. The One who paid for our sins with His own blood. Our righteous, suffering Deliver, Praise to His holy name. Let's pray. Lord, we call upon You now. And we ask God, as we have gathered around Your Word, heard Your Word proclaimed, Lord, we ask God for fruit. God, we need real help in this, in this world that lies under the power of the evil one. We need real help, Lord. God, please plant this Word deep in our hearts, God. God, please plant Your promises deep in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.